Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gib. On April 7th, Rwanda will commemorate a tragedy, basically, a horrific, appalling tragedy, 30 years since the genocide of between 500,000 and 1 million Rwandans. Can the people who committed the crime of genocide ever re-enter and reintegrate and become a part of society again? Because the ones who have served the, the longest, the maximum sentence for genocide, they are now out. We're going to be speaking today with a researcher who interviewed 168 of these people before they were released from prison and four months after they were released from prison. And the question is, will they ever be able to become Rwandan again? Science Unscripted. Hello, my name is Holly Nysetzi Tatira. I'm an associate professor of sociology at Ohio State. I study genocide, and today I'll be talking about the genocide in Rwanda and specifically what's happening as people who committed genocide and spent time in prison have been coming back to their communities. So you weren't looking into uh, how each of these individuals was dealing with the fact that they used a machete against former friends or former neighbors or former fellow citizens. You were more interested in how society welcomes them back. What is a successful reintegration into society after genocide? What does that look like? Yeah, so I'm interested in both how they are dealing with it personally, as well as how their community is accepting them or not. And I think it's a dual process, right? So as they're coming back from prison or from community service camp, they are internally grappling with the fact that they committed genocide, that they're going back to communities where they're known as people who committed genocide. And they're trying to figure out how are they going to apologize to individuals? How are they going to interact with the family members of the people that they killed? For most of the people in the study, they are incredibly remorseful. They are trying to figure out how to apologize to the people that they harmed. And by the four-month mark, many of them already had apologized to the people that they harmed. And broadly, were sharing a narrative of how they had changed and they wanted to be re received as redeemed individuals, as people who had changed and as people who could be viewed as ordinary Rwandan citizens and who would not forever be known as perpetrators of genocide. If I'm totally honest, I, this makes me angry to hear. Because if, if somebody came out of prison who had committed genocide and was saying, I'm so sorry for it and I hope you reintegrate me, I, my, my natural instinctual reaction as a human, I would want to kick them out of my neighborhood, tell them, stay away from me. I don't believe you. You know what I mean? So I, that's, that's terrible to say out loud, but it's my, my honest reaction. And I guess what I'm really asking is um, why, why I believe I probably should have empathy where I don't right now. And can you explain to me why I should? It's definitely hard. So for a larger part of this project, I've spoken with 74 people who did survive the genocide and have asked them these very questions. Many people have underscored that it is certainly hard to see these people back in their communities and that they thought that 20 or 25 years was a long sentence until they saw the people come back to their communities. That said, many have also underscored that they want to try 
to live together once again. They believe that in order to have a country that does not see violence in the future, it's important to at least try. So I wouldn't say that people are fully being successfully welcomed, that everything is 100% rosy, but rather that survivors are open to the idea to having these individuals back in their communities and that they want to try to see if some form of reconciliation is possible. Holly, what's it like to sit down with someone? I mean, I'm assuming you did these interviews in person in Rwanda. What is it like mm-hmm. to sit with with these people, with somebody who took a machete and sliced a, sliced up a number of people, that people that that person knew in, in their neighborhood? What's that like? You know... For genocide studies, there's a a thing that we often tell students is something called the banality of evil. And this is the, the research finding that's consistent across a number of genocides that the people who commit genocide are often incredibly ordinary individuals. And this does not mean to take away from the sheer horrors of genocide, from how evil it is, but rather it's meant to emphasize that many of the people who commit genocide were not violent before the genocide, were people who were, you know, fathers, mothers, teachers, priests, people who had good relationships in their communities and who had a lot of social ties, and then during the genocide committed incredibly egregious acts. And I say all that to say when you sit down with these individuals, in most instances, it can feel like a very normal conversation. You can talk about your children, you know, what you had for breakfast, the weather, and then you kind of almost forget what happened and what they did until you get to that part of the interview. And it can sort of serve as a cognitive dissonance where they they seem like a, a very kind individual. And then you're hearing about these atrocities that they committed decades ago. It's a very strange experience, to be honest. And even though it was decades ago, they are now saying, or a, a majority of them are now saying that they're good people. Do you believe that? Well... Yes and no. So many of the people in this study did try to emphasize that they have become good people, that they are working to be good people, and that this is an identity that they are and that they aspire to. In terms of the research, whether or not I believe it stems more from their actions. So I do believe that how they see themselves is important. And in research on violence, we know that if people see themselves as redeemed and as good people, they're a lot less likely to commit violence in the future versus if someone sees themselves and and sort of adopts an identity as someone who commits violence as a bad person, this type of individual is a lot more likely to go on to commit violence. So it's actually really important for these individuals to see a shift in themselves if they're not going to commit violence in the future. What is the point? ultimately of, of your research is it is it to it, it, the idea really is that when hundreds of thousands of people have participated in genocide the idea is to to successfully reintegrate those people in, in into society into into a community and that 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 should work better than it does you know the point of the research is to understand is that possible and if so how is it possible Genocide is something that occurs worldwide. By most counts, there have been over 40 genocides since the Holocaust. This isn't something just isolated to certain locations. And this means that I think it's really important to consider what happens after genocide. How do communities rebuild? If in Rwanda there was 
no reintegration happening, if people were being ostracized, if we could sort of paint that picture, what would likely be happening then is that these individuals might be returning to violence, that their children might be returning to violence. Because if you think of each of these 240,000 individuals, they're all tied to children, to spouses. So this is a broad group of society. And if all of these individuals were ostracized and not allowed to return, this could set up a really dangerous situation that would perpetuate cycles of violence for years to come. So even though it's incredibly uncomfortable to think about people coming back to their communities, and as I mentioned before, should not be incumbent on survivors to have to welcome people back, I think many Rwandans realize the gravity of this situation, that cycles of violence cannot continue and want to do something to try to stop cycles of violence to truly live up to those large words never again that a lot of folks say but that in practice is pretty difficult there might be people in their homes all over the world right now listening to you what should they take away from from your work or what 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 do you have to teach them that would <laughs> that would broaden their understanding of the, of the human condition or, uh, uh, or, or make their day better? What can you tell them? Yeah, uh, gosh, what a good question. I, I'd say a few things. One of the things I, I haven't really emphasized yet in this discussion is how most Rwandans understand the genocide and understand why people participated in it. So if you ask a Rwandan today, whether they have very little education, whether they're highly educated, whether they're a survivor or not, why does someone commit genocide? Most people are not going to tell you they're horrible, they're evil, and they're not going to focus on individual characteristics. They're going to focus on very structural factors that caused the genocide. So if you ask a Rwandan, why did someone commit genocide in 1994? Nine times out of 10, you're going to get an answer that sort of sounds like, well, to understand why someone committed genocide, we have to understand colonialism in Rwanda. And we have to understand what happened when Belgium came in and altered identities and created identity cards that then shaped local politics. And we have to understand the government and what it was doing. And people will tell you these very structural narratives that paint a picture of how genocide was possible. And this is critical, I think, to people understanding and perhaps even tentatively welcoming the people who committed genocide because they understand that there were a lot of societal processes shaping their actions. I say all of this to say that what we can learn from this is that the narratives of violence matter. And if we think about trying to understand why someone does what they did during genocide, having a structural narrative and understanding a country's history is critical to paving the way for future peace. That was Holly Nyset Enzitatira speaking to us from Columbus, Ohio, I believe she teaches at the Ohio State University. And in her last answer there, uh, when it comes to what people should take from this interview, she, she said you, you would have to speak to someone, somebody actually from Rwanda mm-hmm. to get a sense of whether these people can be welcomed back into society. And we have someone from Rwanda in the studio with us right now. Thank you for joining us, Isaac. Isaac Mugabe from DW's Africa section. Yes, uh, thank you guys for having me. Of course. Isaac, um, how do you view, what would this process be called, reintegration 
is, is it as is it possible? Is it happening in the way that Holly explained to us that people are, are welcoming genocidaires back into their community? Well, it, it's possible because the government wants it that way. The people have no much say about it. It's a kind of reconciliation that was pushed by the government. The question is, do our communities really ready to welcome them? Of course, they have two, if I may emphasize on that, because the government wants them too. But deep down, yeah. it's a different story. That's way more important. So mm. when you are back in Kigali, mm-hmm. in Rwanda, and you see someone who was part of these killing groups, mm-hmm. what does that feel like? For me, personally, I don't think they deserve to be out, in all honesty. They're supposed to pay for the crimes they committed. And there's so many people who feel that way. And I wouldn't associate so much with them, you know, because I don't know what goes deep down in their hearts, whether they're truly sorry for the crimes they did, or given the opportunity, they would finish up the unfinished business. They say that that they've changed, that they're good people again. you You don't believe that? Well, luckily enough, I happened to interview some former convicts, if I may put it that way, that were released, just like the, the recent batch, way back 10 years ago. And they told me the same story. Fast forward after two years, they were caught up in the same, I mean, crimes of hate, you know, towards the people that they killed. And they had to be taken back to jail. So for me, the program is somehow flawed. You know, really they need real psychologists to really find out, external psychologists really to to enter into their brains and see really if these people mean what they say. So in that particular case, they got out, mm-hmm. killed again, uh-huh. and went back to jail. And went back to jail. Are you saying they should stay in jail then forever? Or are you saying they're, I don't know, move somewhere else? No, personally, I think they should stay in jail regardless where it is, you know, but stay you know, incarcerated, if I may put, put it that way, because I, I really, personally, I know and I've spoken to survivors of the genocide, people who lost their family members. I also have members who, who, who were killed in 1984. And I was lucky I covered these stories, but some people don't have access to leaders to question them, you know, why these people are being released. Why, like I said, because they've they have, they have been obliged to say, they are going to come out and you'll be obliged to stay with them because they're remorseful. But I think the majority of Rwandans silently behind closed doors and walls where the walls can't listen anything, they're like, no, they should stay there. It's been 30 years now yes, since the genocide and a lot of words have been spoken about it. Are, are, you, are you tired of, of talking about this or is it, is it still important for us here in Germany or, or anywhere around the world, people are listening to this right now, to be talking about this? Yes, it is important because the memory of victims shouldn't fade away, you know, we, like like wind blowing away the dust, you know. But again, for me, it still comes to really, are there lessons learned? Because I think in 1945, I'm not so sure, when the UN said, never again, you know, never again to genocide. But we still see killings going on and... <laughs> People given a chance, they can even get back the machetes and, and do it again. So I think it's important that you guys are talking about it, you're covering it, so that the people who listen to, to you will say, oh, yes, if there was someone having thoughts of, you know, carrying a machete and killing, they, you know, 
kind of don't do it. You know, but I think it's important, especially also for the for the victims of the genocide. So we remember them. We shouldn't forget them. The moment you don't talk about them, it's like you're denying that the genocide happened. You know, that's why we have April 7th as the International Day for the reflection on the genocide in Rwanda. It's a day that the UN imposed so that everyone knows about what happened in Rwanda. Otherwise, if, if we don't talk about it, then it fades away. And that's how history is easily forgotten. Science Unscripted.